Hi, welcome back to Unsolved South. Hope everybody had a good week. I'm your host, Michelle. And I'm Maddie. Again, we're going to try to keep the chit-chat to the end. And I have another unsolved murder for you today. And this one's back from um, 1966. So it's way Ooh, back. Ooh, so it's a throwback. It is. This one may not be a good one for kids. Not that any of them really are. But this one in particular may not be if you got sensitive children. So hide your kids, hide your wife. Yeah, I'll try to yell earmuffs, but I don't know if I will. Okay, so <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. All right. It was Saturday, October 22nd. Florida State University had an important game against Mississippi State. And it seemed like everybody in town was going to be in attendance. The neighborhoods looked like ghost towns. The few people that didn't attend were watching the game on TV or listening to it on the radio. But for all the teen girls in town that didn't care anything about football, it was going to be a lucrative night by way of babysitting. This was true for two sisters, 15-year-old Judith Ann and 17-year-old Norma Jeanette. Each had a babysitting job for different families that were attending the game. Norma, who is later referred to in the papers as Virginia or Jenny, so I'm just going to call her Jenny, she returned home shortly after okay. 11 p.m. So her name may be Norma Jean Virginia? No, her like name is um, Norma name Jeanette. Norma Jeanette is her name. Jeanette. And I assume that's where then they got they Jenny call from. Her Virginia? That I do not know. <laughs> but she was referred to okay. as Virginia and as Jenny in the papers. So I was just like, mm, I'm just going to stick with Jenny because that's what they called her the most. Yeah. Jenny immediately knew something was off when she got to the door and realized it was open. This was a safe neighborhood they lived in. Several of the neighbors didn't even lock their doors, but Jenny's family did, always. She walked in cautiously. The TV was on. There were two chairs pulled up like somebody was watching TV. One of the chairs had a half-drunk cup of coffee on the floor next to it. She looked around and didn't see anybody, so she called out, heard nothing but silence. She walked through the dining room, and on the table was a set of paints and a half-finished pitcher. The brushes that were laying there were still wet. She continued on calling out for her mom and dad or for her younger sister, Joy. She could hear the radio on in her parents' room, so she knocked when she got to the door, but nobody responded, so she opened it. On the other side of that door was something she could never have imagined, and it was something she would never forget. Laying across the pretty floral bedspread was her daddy, 42-year-old Robert Sims. He was bound at the hands and feet, and he was blindfolded. He was bleeding badly from the head. Before she had time to take in what was happening, she noticed her mama, 34-year-old Helen, was laying on the floor next to the bed. She was also bound at the hands and feet and was blindfolded. Like oh, Robert, goodness. she was bleeding from the head, but also from her leg. 
Diagonal from Helen, also on the floor, was her 12-year-old sister, Joy Lynn. She seemed to be bleeding from everywhere. Oh, my goodness. Jenny ran to the phone, and she called her neighbor. Then she called Beavis Funeral Home and Ambulance Service. Wait, the funeral home was the ambulance? Yes, this was in the 60s, and they didn't have... um, paramedics and such weren't a thing and so a lot of times the funeral home would do double duty they would come pick you up and drive you to the hospital and if you didn't make it they took you on to the funeral home wow who knew yeah so you know how the old-timey um ambulances look like hearses that's why yeah hmm who knew So, she called Beavis Funeral Home and Ambulance Service, and she said, something terrible has happened. Please come quickly. Russell Beavis and his 16-year-old son, Rocky, were there within minutes. Joy was already gone, but Robert and Helen were both clinging on to life, just barely. They had begun to untie the binds, which were all pantyhose and neckties. Um, this move was later criticized by armchair detectives like us. Personally, I feel like they were trying to help the people that were still alive, so it should be excused. When you're trying to save somebody, the crime scene should be secondary, in my opinion. And they didn't mess with the ties on Joy. And so they were just trying to help the people that were still living but now people criticize that and say you know they may be contaminated evidence but i don't i honestly don't believe they did i agree robert died before they could get him loaded into the ambulance um helen was hanging on and she made it to the hospital the family that judith had been babysitting for was called and they were asked not to bring her home and she and Jenny were taken to the home of Reverend Hayes, where they would stay with fam with his family until other arrangements would be made. That way Judy didn't come home to, you know, what was happening. Yeah. The police were called, and they arrived very quickly. The first officer on the scene was 24-year-old Detective Larry Campbell. And he became the lead detective on this case at 24. And he was already a detective, so assumably he was, you know, decent at his job. The police did search the area, but came up empty. The crime scene was not secured. And for some unknown reason, people were allowed to just come in and gawk at the scene. There were Mm -hmm. several searches that were completed and a nearby body of water was even drained. They were looking for a 38 caliber gun or and a large hunting knife or butcher knife that were used in the murders. Neither was found. They thought the murderer was just going to leave it at the scene? Well, they drained the water, the body of water, I said. They, drained, they did a bunch yeah, of searches in the area. Saying- and they drained the body of water, thinking they may have tossed it. I'm saying, it why nice. would he... I mean, I guess. But I feel like he would have took it with him. 
and and they what I'm trying to get at they may have because the weapons were not ever found ever neither the Sims family was very well liked and they were actually from Mississippi and they had been in Tallahassee for just a couple years but they were fitting in well and they were well liked and everybody in the community looked up to them and you know thought they were just genuinely nice people Dr. Robert Sims was the director of data processing for the Florida Department of Education and he worked out of FSU, so Florida State University. Um, FSU is going to pop up mm-hmm. a lot in this story. So I'm just going to shorten it to FSU, and y'all know I mean Florida State. Dr. Robert was considered a pioneer of data processing, and he was known nationwide by people in that field. Basically, he was a computer expert in the 60s when most people didn't even really know what computers were or what they could do. He could have gone on to do great things. He could have been, you know, the next Steve Jobs or who knows. Robert had been shot in the head one time and he passed at the scene before he was loaded into the ambulance. His wife, Helen... Mm -hmm. She was super trendy, super nice. She would model hairstyles and clothes for local stores. She was happy with her life. She had written her sister just the week before to say, quote, there are so many wonderful things to do that I will have to make a list to get them all done. So she was extremely happy with what was going on in her life right then. And up until just days before the attack, she had been the secretary for the assistant pastor of the largest church in Tallahassee. And that would be Reverend Hayes, who her kids were staying with the night of the murder. So why why wasn't she working with him? She had resigned a couple days before and she gave the um, explanation that she wanted to spend some more time with her family. But, well, that's questionable. We'll get into that in a second. (laughs) Helen had been shot twice in the head and once in the leg. Now, Joy Lynn was, she was a sweet girl. Um, People liked her. They all thought she was a a nice, polite kid. She made good grades. She was in seventh Mm -hmm. grade. Um, She had a lot of friends. She sang in a trio at church with her sisters on the regular. She, that night, had actually been invited to spend the night with a friend that lived um, just across the street from the Sims family. But her parents had told her not this weekend because they had missed church the weekend before. And so they absolutely needed to go to the next service the following day. So they did not allow her to go spend the night with her friend. So she was home that night. Joy was in her nightgown and it was pulled up and her panties were pulled down to her ankles. She had also been bound, but she was not blindfolded. She had been punched in the face. She had been stabbed six times in the chest and abdomen and she had been shot once in the head. But there was no sign of sexual assault 
there was money in Robert's pocket and there was money laying on the dresser next to several pieces of nice jewelry and they were still there nothing was missing nothing was disturbed it did not look like anybody had rummaged through any drawers or closets or anything so robbery did not seem to be a motive in this case there was no sign of forced entry there was zero evidence pointing to who the killer or killers were but we're going to get into suspects in just a second but first this happened on october 22nd and of course both helen and robert's families from back in mississippi were called to come make arrangements and to care for the remaining girls and helen was in the hospital still fighting for her life both camp families came just as she did yes she's still in the hospital she's fighting for her life so they need to come um check on that you know make decisions as far as helen's health they need to come make arrangements for robert and joy lynn to be buried and they have these other two girls that need somebody to take care of them because they're staying with the preacher and so both of the families come just as soon as they can helen's mom came and she stayed with the girls at reverend hayes's house for a few days Robert's father, or maybe both his parents, I never saw his mother mentioned, but, you know, I assume if she was around that she was there also, but his father came to Tallahassee to help any way he could. However, on October 24th, he suffered a heart attack and had to be admitted into the hospital. He was actually unable to attend his son and granddaughter's funerals because he was still hospitalized. And I said funerals, but it was actually one funeral. They did a, a nice joint funeral form. It was a nice service. Also unable to attend the service was Reverend Hayes, who had a heart attack of his own on October 25th. The service was held on October 26th, and afterwards, the father and daughter were driven by ambulance to Mississippi, where another funeral service was held, and then they were buried in Mississippi at the church where Helen's father had once been a pastor. There had been no movement on the case, and a lot of people had been questioned, and a lot of searches had been done, but they were not coming up with answers at all. People were scared. Their nice, quiet town had been infected with so much evil. People were suddenly very protective of their families. They wouldn't let their kids out of their sight, much less to go out and play or to visit with friends. The hardware stores sold out of locks and door chains. The days of not locking doors was gone, and now people didn't even want to answer their doors to anyone, even people they knew. Housewives were filling up water guns with household chemicals and carrying them in their aprons so they would always have a weapon on them. They were putting like ammonia and stuff in the water guns. And then they would keep them on them, and that way if somebody attacked, they would be able to spray them with the whatever household chemical. 
people were scared. I mean, there was, you know, they were like, is there a serial killer on the loose? This is a family, you know, if your neighbor gets brutally murdered like that, you've got to stop and think, why did they pick that house and not mine? You know, we live 50 foot away. That could have been us, you know? So, yeah, it scared the crap out of people. The police wanted city leaders to call trick-or-treating off that year. Um, since having people in masks running around in the dark ringing doorbells was just a disaster waiting to happen. And they have a good point. <laughs> the city leaders did not want to do that. And the, the people that lived in the community were kind of mixed on it. Um... The city leaders compromised, though, and so they did allow the kids to trick-or-treat, but only during daylight hours. They had to be finished before dark. After a hard nine-day fight, Helen passed away on Halloween. She had never regained consciousness, and so she was never able to offer any help to the case. She was later buried with her husband and their daughter in Mississippi. And they, they had a service for her as well in Tallahassee. The community had put together a $16,000 reward for information. And that would be over $149,000 in today's money. So people really wanted to know what happened. Now, fast forward a little bit. On December 7th, and this is a wild one. On December 7th, a woman says she's trying to make a phone call. And um, the operator accidentally patched her through to an ongoing conversation. And she heard a young man say... It, it happened pretty frequently back then. And some places even had party lines, I think, in the 60s. Um, I would guess so because my mother used to talk about them and my grandmother used to talk about them. Because um, people, like, you could just pick up your phone and there would be ongoing conversations. It was kind of like a chat room, but on the telephone. So if you picked up your the phone and there would be, people having conversations and you could join into their conversation or you could say you know hey I need to make a private phone call and see if they would give you the the phone line to make your private phone call but I know my grandmother always used to complain because there was some nosy neighbor they had and whenever you tried to make a phone call like she would go okay and then she would pretend to hang up but she didn't and then she would listen in on all the phone calls and then be spreading everybody's gossip so it it wasn't that unheard of but um in this case, she was trying to make a long-distance phone call, and that's not who she got put through to. So this wasn't a party line situation. This was just that they had connected her to the wrong party. And she heard a young man say, and this is what she says that he said exactly. Exactly the way she says he said it. So I'm just throwing that out there. He said, Mother, I have done a terrible thing. I have killed three persons. 
Yeah, that struck me too. But then, I don't know, people might have talked more fancy back in the day. She immediately calls the police, and so they are able to trace it back to a bank of, of 200 phones that are in Brevard, Brev, Brevard County. I want to say Brevard, but that doesn't sound right. I've heard it said a million times, and all of a sudden, I don't know how to say it, so y'all just pretend I said it right. Okay, so they questioned over 700 people, but they came up short. Nobody admitted that it was a phone call that they had heard, which I don't know if, you know, I don't know if a lot of mothers were just going to automatically be like, oh, yeah, you know, I think you might try to get your son to turn himself in, but I don't know if you'd rat him out necessarily. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know, though. In any case, they came up short. They did not find any useful information or evidence that the conversation had actually happened. They did discover, though, that Dr. Sims, Robert, had been there for work about a month before he was killed. But they didn't really think it was connected just a coincidence, which this story seems to be full of. So now on to the suspect list. There are. Um, because also another coincidence, which I may or may not have written to bring up later, but if I do, then we'll just ignore it. But another coincidence was that that Florida State was playing Mississippi and they were from Mississippi and then they got murdered the night of that game. That's another weird coincidence in my opinion. So anyway, just what are the chances? That's all I'm going to say. So now on to our suspect list. One of the first suspects named was Reverend Roberts. So that was his last name, okay? He was the head pastor, pastor of the church. So Reverend Hayes was the assistant pastor, but Reverend Roberts was the head of the church. And people loved him. He was packing the house every Sunday. People just absolutely adored him, right? When it first happened, they tried to interview him, and he was just too distraught to even speak when the media came to him. But he got over that, and so he gave a bunch of interviews. <laughs> and he also announced that he, along with his church, and Dr. Mode Stone with FSU, had set up an education fund for the remaining two Sims girls. So that was nice. So they would pay for them to go to college, I assume at FSU, but maybe anywhere. But I mean, if Florida State's putting it up, I guess they expect them to go there. It was surmised that perhaps Reverend Robert was the reason that Helen had quit her job. Now, I didn't exactly see what that reason would have been written down anywhere, 
but I'm sure we can put it together with our little inquisitive minds. She either had to have seen something that she wasn't supposed to or found out something she wasn't supposed to, or he had to have been hitting on her, harassing her, or something like that, right? I mean, they're just guesses, but, you know, they're they're decent guesses based on what we know about everything ever <laughs> in this situation. So, um... So those were the guesses. And the murders were just days after she quit. So that's another coincidence. The questions did need to be asked. I agree with that. She she worked for Reverend Hayes, though. But I'm sure she did have some kind of contact with Reverend Roberts. It was a, a big church. But, you know, on days when people aren't there worshiping, and she was there, I'm sure there were not that many people around. And so I'm sure she had contact with him. Reverend Roberts, though, he had an alibi. He, like most everybody else in town, was at the big game, right? Um, he was well known because, like I said, it's the biggest church in the town. And so a lot of people attend. So people know him. And so a lot of people had seen him. Also... He was FSU's team chaplain, and so he was on camera right there next to the field pretty much all night. So physically, he could not have killed anybody. Now, fun fact, he did leave town. He could not physically have done it himself, correct? Fun fact. He did leave town a year or so after the murders amid all these rumors going around that he had had several affairs with several much younger women in the congregation. They were college-age women. So we're not talking about, like, kids or anything. But, you know, he was having affairs, and that's frowned upon probably by his wife more than anybody, but also I believe the Bible's got a thing to say about it. And <laughs> I wasn't going to include it, but I've got to now. <laughs> so earmuff them kids, maybe. <laughs> so um, one of the one of the reports I read said that the when they were questioning him, they went in with their little um, black light to see if there was blood <laughs> and they said Let, let's just say he was a very busy man <laughs> they said that room lit up <laughs> but it wasn't blood <laughs> another set of suspects that was mentioned but left unnamed by detective and later sheriff campbell because um, remember, this case is super old, so he eventually moved up in rank and actually became the sheriff. He still investigated the case. Um, he did not name this couple. He just said it was a teenage couple who lived near the Sims home and who knew details about the murder that were never released to the public. And I need to pause here and just throw in the reminder that that scene was not locked down. So somebody that came in and got 
could have been gossiping to their neighbor or to one of these kids parents or whatever and the kids overheard it or maybe they were gossiped too about it and that could be how they found out this information so i don't think that necessarily you can say oh well this proves it all now Campbell may not have named them because they were young. One was um, in their early 20s. One was a teenager. Or possibly he didn't name them because the young man's father was super well-known and very well-connected to this um, community. And here's where I normally would say, well, they didn't name them in the report and they didn't really name them, name them as suspects. So I'm not going to name them, but I am going to name them because they actually both managed to name themselves later. And uh, we're going to go through that, but I'm going to name them because they named themselves first. Also, we're all friends here, right? So we ain't going to rat me out for naming them. So the girl's name was, that's right, Mary Charles LaJoy. And she was known around town as being odd. She had actually gotten in trouble several times for entering funeral homes. And she um, got in serious trouble for stealing burial gowns. And then she took them home and slept in them. She seemed really obsessed with death. Yeah. Her father worked at the electrical department of FSU. And she was dating and then later married and divorced a boy named Vernon Fox Jr. And he also had a bad reputation of being kind of a delinquent, for lack of a better word. Um, Vernon's father, though, was known nationwide for his work in criminology and corrections. He actually established established the Southern Correctional and Criminology Research Center with a $300,000 grant he had received from the Ford Foundation. And that would be over $3 million in today's money. Then after he did that, he decided to come to FSU in 1952, and he ran their criminology department. <laughs> he wrote several books on criminology and on the correction system. He was um, also a warden at some point in his career of a major prison. And um, so, yeah, he's super well-known and super well-versed in criminology. So, there's that. <sighs> they were a weird couple. And they were always seen together, usually hanging out in cemeteries. And a lot of times they were getting into some kind of trouble. And there were rumors that Vernon liked young, young girls. <clears throat> now, these were just rumors. I don't know if they're true. He was not ever... As far as I know, accused or convicted of that, but it was rumors that were going around town, all right? In 1986, 
Vernon, at this point, him and um, Mary had been divorced, and he remarried. So, all of a sudden, in 1987, Mary pops up and volunteers to go talk to Sheriff Campbell and give him an interview. Just all of a sudden, right after he gets remarried. So, this turns into a four to six hour long interview where she told a version of what happened that October night in the context of kind of like a dream. Like, what if this happened? What if that happened? She tells she tells this whole story and then she asks, she says, well, what would happen to me if I did confess? And she was told by Sheriff Campbell that if she said anything actually incriminating, she would be arrested. And so shortly after that, the interview ended. A video of this interview was made available to author Henry Cabbage, who showed a snippet of it during a presentation to the Historical Society of Tallahassee. During this video that he showed, Mary says that she saw the body of... Um, let me pause right here and just say, listen carefully to what I'm saying. This is what she said during the interview. So just listen carefully to what I'm saying. Um, so Mary says that she saw the body of the little girl laying on the floor. Her clothes were off. She turns and asks, how could he be turned on by something like that? How could he be interested in that ugly little girl? So when this comes out, um, because, you know, people saw it, and so now they're going to talk about it. <laughs> and to my knowledge, that was the only copy Exactly. That was the only copy that someone other than police had, right? Um, so when Vernon hears about this, he responds that he had known Mary in the past to exercise her psychic powers and that it had taken Campbell four hours to realize that she was just speaking nonsense. Then he also says that she could not accurately describe the interior of the house, which she should have been able to do if she had actually been there. Interestingly enough, a lawyer working with the prosecutor's office was investigating the case, and he says on record that Mary, in fact, was able to draw the layout of the house in 1966 or 1967. He says that she admitted at the time that she went to the Sims door that night, but he doesn't go into detail as to why she said she was there. He also says that she missed school the following Monday after the murders and that she had told one of her friends I could have told them everything about the murders. We'll get back to that. <clears throat> In a police interview, she says that um, Vernon was spotted by the neighbors under the banana tree in the Sims' backyard watching Joy. 
and that um, Vernon had come to her and said that he was that that little girl was going to get him in trouble, and so maybe she had helped him do something about it, but she never legitimately confesses, I guess. Vernon completely denies this. He says that never happened. On the night of the murder, he says that he and Mary had had sex in her mom's car and she had dropped him off in the area and he saw three or four white men in a car. They were driving slowly and acting suspiciously. He had made it home just before the bodies were discovered, so he would not have had time to commit the crime. If I don't think I've said this, so let me tell y'all that um, the Fox family, Vernon's family's land, literally butted up to the Sims property. So their house was behind the Sims facing another street. And their properties literally touched. There was no fence, no blockade, nothing separating these two properties so literally he could walk into his backyard and walk into the sims backyard mary lived a street over from both of them like two blocks over from these other two houses so they were all very close in the area so just for a little context on how Easy this would have been if he had been somebody that would like to peek into little girl's windows. Now, <clears throat> Vernon has made it a habit to comment on any social media that is connected to this case. And I do mean anything. If there was social media connected to this case, at some point, Vernon made some kind of con comment on it. And some of his responses are odd. And he also does this weird thing where he refers to himself in the in the third person. So he's like, um, Vernon did not look at that little girl. So it just, some of his responses are super weird. And so to give you a little bit of context on that, here are a couple that I took from the Reddit thread, a Reddit thread I found. And also, I don't believe I said the attorney's name that was working for the um, prosecutor's office. His name is Jeremy Mutz. And he, now he was not without his own issues. He had had some, um, I think his fiance had got busted with DUI or something. And so he fixed it where they could get a lighter sentence. And so he's not without his own issues, but he accused the prosecutor's office of firing him when he insisted that they needed to bring charges against Vernon and Mary. The prosecutor's office denies that, but they just said he was obsessed with the case and he's no longer with them. But um, do recall that, you know, his family in particular, very well connected. So we'll go back to that. In any case, um, the reason I bring it up is because um, Jeremy Mutz actually comments on this thread also. And him and Vernon go back and forth. And I do know that this is Vernon because um, 
well, because he's everywhere. He's honestly everywhere, but he's also given interviews and, um, and these are things he stated. So I do believe this to be him. So Vernon says, I believe that the plants were trampled in the side yard by the killers watching Gibbs drive and waiting for the car that picked them up after the murders. The knife-wielding killer probably cleaned his knife on the shrubs after the murders. The killer would be less likely to be seen there than if they were standing by Gibbs waiting for a ride. Look at the photo of the side yard on Facebook Justice for Joy solving the Sims murder. That photo shows the house from the side yard. You can see the carport, brick walls, and laundry area behind the clothesline. It's not possible to observe family members from that location. The bedrooms are on the opposite side of the house. Nobody watched the house from the point of view. And the photos do not show any banana trees. Okay, so let's go back. <clears throat> Remember when Mary said that he had been spotted by neighbors standing by the banana trees? He just makes a random point that there are no banana trees in the backyard. Yeah. Also, I visited Justice for Joy, and um, these pictures, I believe, are current pictures, and so the banana trees may not be there now. It's been a long time. So, also, I want to point out that he said Mary could not accurately draw the um, layout of the house, Mm -hmm. and she should be able to do that if she had been there. And then he goes on to say where the bedrooms are located in this house. Mm. So I just want to point that out. Yeah. Now, Jeremy Mutz responds, some thought the killer, that the killer actually sliced the banana leaves with the knife while he waited in that spot. The killer or killer's, were undoubtedly smart to commit murder within yards of about 15 other people when you consider that there was an older couple at home behind the Sims house. There was a babysitter and and small children next door to them, another babysitter and a small child at the end of Vonsil, and your sister and her baby were at home on the corner of Gibbs and Vonsil literally yards away from whoever hid there in the shrubs and do so evading potential eyewitnesses and do so while not committing a bunch of mistakes such as running out and leaving bloody handprints on doors which does happen whomever did this thought about it planned it and likely entered the sims home on previous occasions and felt comfortable in the area. They knew the area well, in my opinion. Vernon says, unless he could see through a brick wall, he couldn't see anybody inside the Sims house. Yeah. Now, a little bit later, Vernon says that um, he believes it was the men from, I believe he said Wyoming. Yeah, he said Wyoming. And... Mr. Mutz is like, what is the connection to Wyoming? Because he says that's where the knife got um, tossed, where the murder weapons got tossed was on the way to Wyoming, mm-hmm. which is a strange thing 
to bust yeah. out. Yeah. Now, remember that that Mr. Mutz is working with the prosecutor's office. He has all of the case information for this case. He has everything, right? So, he asks, what is the connection to Wyoming? Which means he has not heard this story about these men from Wyoming, right? Vernon Fox responds and says, the three men from Wyoming who met with Mr. Sims at his house on Saturday, the police cleared them. Those records are sealed because of the dates on which the investigation took place. But I think they made an appointment to come back that night because they didn't get to talk to Helen Sims that day. They returned that night and tried to talk the Sims out of exposing the sex activities of the pastor. Things went wrong and they reverted to text tactics used to subdue control and enforce their will on um, members of opposing gangs. Okay, so you see how his statements are just, just odd? Yeah, that's just like, I don't even know what to say about it. It's just... It's odd. It is. Okay, so also the um, attorney working with the prosecutor's office would have, I would think that he would have the records, and I'm not sure why any records would be sealed because of the dates. Um, I don't even know what that meant. It, it was just such, it was odd, so I felt like I should include it. Yeah. To kind of put you in the mind frame of what we're looking at here. Okay. Um, these were not the only um, suspects. There were some good suspects that I just had to leave out. So there's no evidence that anybody did this at all. Other than the bodies, there is no evidence. Whoever did it did not leave evidence behind or was just super duper lucky and somebody that came through the crime scene traipsed all over the evidence and hit it. Yeah. I mean, is anybody that lucky though? Or would it be somebody that was very well versed in how to cover a crime, I guess? I mean... Um, Okay, so here are my possibilities. Some of them more likely than others. Okay. Um, could have been somebody from their past that just happened to come into town for the football game because that is an interesting coincidence that FSU was playing Mississippi. Or somebody that maybe took football way too serious and somebody, you know, was like, oh, FSU's going to win or Mississippi's going to win or whoever. And maybe one of them was like, you know, they said FSU's going to win. And one of the Sims was like, oh, Mississippi. And somebody took it too serious. Did the Sims even like football? Uh, Yeah, the radio was playing the station that um, would have had the football game on it in the bedroom. So, presumably, Mr. Sims was laying Okay, are you sure that they... I was going to say, are you sure that they were watching it and not the killers turned it on? Um, I don't know why they would necessarily turn it on to that station. But, so, presumably, what happened in my mind, and, like, 
you know, this is just in my mind how I imagine it. Like, I'm over here with Mary using my psychic powers. Um, presumably what happened was that Robert was in the bedroom listening to the football game, laying on the bed, that, um, Joy Lynn was probably at the table painting, and the mom was probably the one watching TV in the living room based on the half cup of coffee. So, yeah. Either the father or Joy Lynn was probably sitting with the mother watching TV. That's why the second chair was there. And they got up and went to do something else. Um, So that's probably what happened. Somebody knocked on the door. She went and opened the door. Whoever was there, she immediately did not go, oh, no, a threat. Um, they probably, you know, asked her a question or said they needed help or whatever. For whatever reason, she opened the door to them. They pulled a gun, escorted her, grabbed the daughter, went into the bedroom. I mean, that's in my yeah. mind how it would have had to happen because there was no sign of force entry. So, either the door was unlocked or they opened the door for them. And the daughter said that they did not leave their door unlocked. Now, accidents happen. But chances are oh, yeah. they opened the door for somebody that they did not view as a threat. So, do you think it was the reverend? He had quite a following and he could have had somebody else commit the crime that night because he knew he would have a solid alibi because he would be on TV that night and he knew it. Yeah, he is very skit. So if he was going to get somebody to commit the crime, that would be a good night to do it because his alibi would be so solid. True. But there's zero evidence whatsoever that Helen was having any kind of relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that the affairs were as well kept of a secret as you might like to believe. Um, With that many of them, the chances that nobody told one of their friends or, you know, whatever is pretty pretty slim, slim, right? And... It feels like it maybe was something that, you know, he was a wonderful pastor or whatever. Maybe people were just kind of looking the other way on it. And like I said, they were all of legal age. None of them were kids or anything. So, you know, they were consenting adults. They were coming to his office, presumably on their own accord. So... I think it's a good possibility that there were other people that knew and people just kind of turned a blind blind eye, including probably his wife. I mean, the chances of her not knowing are pretty slim. So I don't know that he really would have had a reason to kill them. Yeah. And, and why not just Helen then? I mean, I guess you could have assumed that she told her but husband. But I feel like... The, I don't know. I just don't know if that was a good enough reason. I feel like the person who got the most 
abused and the most like I don't know hate during this um, crime was Joy like she was beaten so bad that sounds personal it sounds like the reason they were there is for her right so was it this weird couple that had the obsession with death and an affinity for young girls now Vernon says no but I mean they look like likely Uh, very likely so like I said there were some other good suspects there were some other good suspects that were ruled out for whatever reason and this got super long so I just couldn't devote the time for them but there were some other ones they got ruled out due to lie detector tests alibis things like that so it I'm pretty confident that even though they were um very good options for suspects I feel pretty confident that they were not involved um so because the actually both the females had more damage done to their bodies robert was shot once and um helen was shot in the leg and in the head head twice and she was shot twice in the head in the head and she was shot in the leg so she was shot three times and then all the abuse that joy lynn suffered um i think that it's likely that it's one of two things that either somebody had beef with Robert, um, maybe they wanted some sort of information from him or something, and then they tried to make him talk by hurting his wife and daughter. Yeah, maybe. Or that you're right, and the person they were really there for was Joy, but the parents just happened to be there. So this goes back to her being invited to that slumber party. If she had gone, would the other family have just been the ones to get murdered instead of the Sims family? I don't know. I think it's at all possible because, I mean, personally, I think it was an attack on Joy Lynn. And if either of the parents had not been there, that would have been fine with the killer because she was the one they were after. And I do believe that. Yeah. I agree. So, all right. So I got a little little update on this, um, not on the story, but on some of the information. Okay. So towards the end of me finishing up this story, I actually found the video of the interview it was included in a documentary called 641 muriel court which is their Mm -hmm. address and it was done by kyle jones i waited until i finished my story before i watched any of it just because i didn't want it to kind of um sway me one way or another because i had done a lot of research on my own and i kind of wanted to form my own opinion um, you know, which I, I had an opinion, but, you know, I was like, meh, could be, could not be. And this documentary, by the way, looks super well done. So if you've got the time to watch it and you're interested in the story, you may want to go watch it and we'll include the link to it. Um, 
I kind of skipped through because I didn't have time to finish it. And I just kind of skipped to the interview with um, Mary. Mm-hmm. And they refer to her as Charlie. Because her, her name was Mary Charles LaJoy. Yeah. Um, and she liked to be called Charlie. And so they refer to her as Charlie. So if I used that interchangeably at any point, she's the same person. Um, I I looked at the interview with that and the interview with Vernon because I was just kind of curious to see what they said. And in all honesty, their interviews swayed my opinion heavily the direction I was already leaning it just tipped me right on over yeah and I wish I had um had been able to post it earlier because I wish everybody had seen it because there was this one part of it that was that I caught that I'm not sure if everybody will catch but it was during Vernon's interview and just it was something he did that I caught that was so creepy and but I don't want to sway anybody's opinion by saying what it is. <laughs> but I wish we could discuss it. But tell us. It was so creepy. Okay, I'm going to tell y'all. But if y'all don't want your opinion swayed, just uh, stop it now. Okay, so they asked him about when he had met um, Charlie. Mm-hmm. And he says he was in fifth grade and she was in third grade. And he says um, that, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically he says she was she was just the, the prettiest thing. He says she was the most gorgeous thing. She was a friend of his sister's in third grade. And he uh, goes, she was the most gorgeous thing. And then he licks his lips. Oh, now, this is him as a grown-ass man thinking back on it. And, like, to me, if I think about my, you know, my little boyfriend I had in fifth grade, I'm like, oh, he was so cute. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not, like, I'm not going to look at him as an adult and go, oh, yeah, he was hot. You know, that's... Creepy. That's gross. It struck me as creepy. And then he licked his, he licked his lips, and I was like, mm-hmm. No. Also, a lot of um, the stuff she said did not, it did not, in fact, sound like she was a mental patient exercising her psychic powers. We'll put it that way. That is not the way she came across to me. It came across to me as somebody that knew some stuff and wanted to implicate him in it without implicating herself in it and could not figure out a way to do that Hmm. and I feel like she was asking what happens if I confess in the sense that she was wanting a deal yeah in which she was let off to say what she knew and the sheriff either did not recognize that or did not bite on that that's the way it came across to me but um like i said somebody else could watch it and come up with something completely different but it was definitely it was worth watching them up and if you do watch it go to our facebook discussion group and let us know what you thought please do because i want to know if anybody else caught that tongue thing because it was so quick 
but just like the way he said it and he licked his he was like no nah. it was it was creepy it really was so all right well that's the end of my story story all right do you- are we out of time you know because we had to start this like three times technically we probably are out of time because i had a story how long is your story all right well i'll save it for another time it's long because it was like something super exciting happened this week oh but i want to do another here i got a short one that is i got a short one that is um just like a maybe a moral question okay all right, I ain't gonna name no names because uh, I don't want to get nobody in trouble, like anybody at all. Okay. So, um, so say you're driving down the road, and it's okay. um, it's a four lane highway. So there's two lanes on your side, two lanes on the opposite side, right? Driving down the road. All right. The speed limit is 65 on this road. So yes. we all know that in Georgia that means seventy-two, right? Okay. Yeah. So you're seventy-two down this road, and a fire truck pulls out from a road up ahead. Mm-hmm. It's a long straight road. Like you're not close to the fire truck. They pull out. They have their lights and siren going. Okay. You're driving seventy-two. You are steady coming up on this fire truck. Mm-hmm. This fire truck is going, the speed limit is 65. This fire truck is going 50. Okay. Lights and sirens going. They have traffic backed up so far, like so ridiculously far. They are in the right-hand lane. The left-hand lane is open. However, the law is that if a fire truck gets behind you, you got to pull over. So if you pass, the fire truck is then behind you, so you got to pull over and let them pass. So you're just stuck in this infinite loop of hopscotch, right? So do you pass or do you not pass? Uh, you... And they are going well under the speed limit. You pass well under the speed limit. Here's the thing. If you pass, you have to keep going and you cannot let this fire truck get back up on you. If you let this fire truck get back on you, you're in the wrong. If you are going anywhere near the speed that the fire truck is going, then you are in the wrong. No, this fire truck is in no hurry to get anywhere quickly. And I personally would be like, if I was in the car, I would be like, um, I certainly hope if my shit is on fire, this fire truck will go a little faster. Because they are going, and I am not exaggerating at all, the speed limit was 65. They were going between 45 and 55, like just in between. So I said they were going about 50. So, because they're slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, but they never get over, they never get over 55 at any point. Yeah, so if you so, pass, if you pass, let's you better just be say, going 72. That's yeah, we saying. were already going 72 before they stopped. No, us. I'm saying, so, like, if you're um, going to pass the people them, on this going. road, these, the, yes, The people on this road have full intention of being on this road for the least amount of time possible. So they are in the speed mode. 
this guy has slowed everyone down. So anyway, so let's just say somebody was in the vehicle behind them and then they look over because another truck comes up and they like ride beside them and they look over and let's just say you look over and you're like, oh, I don't know. And then they're like, they want to pass, but they don't know if they can pass. And then another vehicle comes up and they look at you and you're like, mm-hmm. And so they want to pass, and then they back off, like, to give you room to pass. But you're like, shit, I don't know if I can pass. And so you, like, back up, and then they go, like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then they're like, no, I can't do it. And so you're, like, jockeying like this with these three vehicles for a while, and you wind up following this truck for five miles down the road. (laughs) With them going super well under the speed limit. And then finally, this one truck is like, I got it. And he just books it. And he he hits his 72 and he blows this fire truck out of the water. The vehicle right behind him goes, I'm somebody is like, yeah. I'm going to go too now. And so they go. So they go around, and so this fire truck is, like, in the rear view, but he's, like, way back. But now people are like, ooh, should I pass? Should I, they pass? Should I pass? But he's got, like, 50 cars behind him. And then let's just say, after following this dude for a good five miles, you top the hill and there are fire trucks and police everywhere because the whole entire that other side of the highway is on fire. Jeez! So there was an actual emergency that this dude was in zero hurry to get to. And now you may have passed this guy and like now you're in the emergency, but everything's on the opposite side, so it's cool. But the fire engines that are there, they're like running. They're like, like you know how sometimes they be slow pimping with the hose and stuff and they're yeah. just not in a hurry? These dudes are in a hurry. They are like, like I don't know if it was about to catch something important or something that was going to explode or what, but they are in a massive hurry. More hurry than I've ever seen a fireman in that my own house was not on fire. And, um, <laughs> but these dudes in this other fire truck, they're just slow pimping up the road. So, and then just oddly enough, I got up about three more miles and the you other side somebody. of the road was on fire there. And there And then there were a bunch, yes, somebody got up the road, and then there were a bunch of fire trucks there also. And then up the road, probably about two or three more miles, there was more fire on that side of the road, but nobody was there. And so I was like, did they think they got it out and moved to the next fire, and now it's flamed back up? Will they come back for it? I don't know. But I'm like, it's not my business. Let me just move on about my life. Somebody what was the like heck? that. But morally morally, I was like, pass or no. Somebody was like, pass or no. Pass. It wasn't me. <laughs> pass. Um if if it you do so know weird. the answer legally, let us know on our Facebook discussion. Legally, group. I think the answer is you cannot pass. Because I think legally, once you pass, that fire truck is behind you, and then you got to pull over and let them pass you back. Not if you're in the left lane. That's my theory. Not if you're in the left lane for a while. 
Okay, but then they needed to be in the left lane because the it was on the left side of the highway that was on fire. But they were in the right lane. It was they, ridiculous. I just do not know why they were in no hurry to get there. They were zero help. I hope they got in trouble. <laughs> anyway, so I do have another very exciting story that happened to someone that may or may not have been me, but probably it wasn't me. But it was a very exciting story that happened this week. So we need to record again soon so that I can tell the story because I'm scared I'll forget what happened. Okay, you need to make a note to tell us so you don't forget. It's a long story. Okay, just make a note of but, what okay. the story is about. Just say, remember to tell the Listen, story we about... we need to record da, 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 da. the story. Listen, we need to end this episode and then record my story so you can patch it on at the end of the next episode. Okay, but I do have to edit this episode tonight. <laughs> and post it. But my story won't take that long. All right, we can do that. But it won't take that long, and you don't have to post it till tomorrow. But anyway, okay, so um, you can do our social media stuff, and we're going to share this podcast with somebody who loves football. Ooh. Go dogs! And uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram, it is Unsolved underscore South, and on Facebook, it's Unsolved South Podcast. And we have also have a discussion group that you can join and let us know your thoughts, your theories, all that good stuff. If you feel like emailing us, our email is unsolvedsouthpodcast at gmail.com. Hey. All right. We'll talk to y'all right. later. Bye. Bye. All right. I'm going to hit.